James chapter 2. This morning we were looking at the second half of chapter 2. Last week we looked at the first half. I'll be reading from verse 14 through verse 26. Please give your full attention to the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. We speak to something that the parents among you will fully understand. Some of life's greatest joys and life's greatest frustrations have come in my calling from God to be a dad. <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord gives us, when he calls us to be a parent, he gives us an awesome and terrifying job to train up a child in the way that he should go. And when our children choose the true, the good, and the righteous, we rejoice. But when they choose the false and the evil and the rebellious path, we grieve and gnash our teeth in frustration. Let me share with you, uh, many of you are going to say, well, that's obvious, but I'm going to share with you one of the keys to me finding my way through that minefield of being a parent over many years one of the most important things I learned, I can't make my children want to do what's right. I can't make my children want to be good. I can show them what is good, I can teach them what is right, but I can't make them want to do it. If I had understood that with my first child, I would have made a lot less mistakes. If I would have understood that with the other four, I would have made a lot less mistakes. <laughs> you see, there's a progression that I've learned just from experience of living with children and trying to train them to walk in the way they should go, that there's kind of a progression in how they learn to obey. When they're very young, when they're toddlers, typically the way that you teach them the right way to go is to punish them for going the wrong way. For instance, you say, don't put that fork in the electric outlet, 
because if you survive it, I'm gonna put you back in your playpen. So there's punishment. And at a very early age, they can understand, I don't want to do that because that will lead to a bad result. Well, then you kind of graduate from that as they get a little older into using reward. They can kind of reason, you can reason with them that if they do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing, there'll be a reward. So if you clean your room, I'll take you to the creamery for ice cream. That's a powerful motivation. But then you understand as the children get a little older that disciplining them or punishing them when they do something wrong or rewarding them when they do something right is only has a very temporary effect that it, whenever those punishments for doing wrong and rewards for doing right go away then where's their motivation to do what they should and so for older children you realize you've got to get to the point where they do the right thing or don't do the wrong thing because they want to please you as the parent they've learned the value of a loving relationship and they've learned, hopefully, to honor you as a parent and to want to please you. And so they do the right thing because when you find out about it, they want you to be proud of them. I'm so proud of you that you got straight A's. They want that very badly. But what you realize is that they're not really ready to go out and face the world until you've transferred that from yourself to God to when they get to the point where they do what's right and don't do what's wrong, not primarily to please you because you're not going to be there for very long. They do what's right and don't do what's wrong because they want to please God. They want to honor God. They want to glorify God. And that's where they need to be before they're ready to go out and face the hard, difficult, cruel world. But that last step is totally out of our control. I can't produce that desire in any of my children. I can't do anything to make it. God has got to do something in them for them to have that motivation, to be able to stand on their own and choose what is right and choose not to do what's wrong for the right reason, to honor and please God. Jesus said, you must be born again. And if a person is not born again, they will never want to do the right thing or not to do the wrong thing for the right reasons. It'll never happen. You see, I realized that unbelievers can get to the third level. They can do the right thing and not do the wrong thing because they don't want to be punished or because they want to be rewarded or because they want to maintain a, a loving relationship with someone. They can reach that level, but unbelievers can't reach that fourth level. God's got to do a miracle in their heart. He's got to change their desires. Well, I say all that as kind of background to looking at the end of chapter 2. In James, The end of chapter 2 in James is, without a doubt, the most controversial passage in this entire epistle. Matter of fact, it's probably in the top five, if not number one, in the entire New Testament in terms of controversy. And it's because of verse 24. I don't care who you are. If you're honest as a Protestant, I don't know of a single Protestant who wouldn't wince when they read that verse carefully. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Don't you just want to shake James and say, have you never read Paul? <laughs> I mean, he is almost seems like he's intentionally contradicting the very heart of what Paul taught over and over and over in all his writings in the New Testament. celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this year. 
Martin Luther's whole ministry centered around we are saved by faith alone. That was the key phrase. We are saved by faith alone apart from our works. And that's not Luther saying that. That's the Apostle Paul who said that. Romans chapter 3 verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I'm sure that many of you have heard that uh, Martin Luther once called the book of James or the epistle of James a right strawy epistle. He didn't think very highly of it, even though he never denied that it should have been a part of God's word. One of the phrases most people don't know that I actually like a little better is that Martin Luther actually said once that he gets so frustrated by reading James that he almost feels like throwing Jimmy into the stove. <laughs> but you got to cut Martin Luther a little slack because he was facing a huge battle. He, his enemy, was the false gospel of salvation by works. The idea that you can earn your way into God's favor and into heaven. That was a teaching that had infected the church during the Middle Ages. And the Protestant Reformation was about calling the church back to the true gospel that we are justified by faith alone. And so in, when you're in the heat of the battle and you're fighting against the enemy who's trying to tell you you're saved, you can understand you might possibly go too far to the other extreme and start to deny the necessity of good works. James created problems for, for Martin Luther, but I, and I, I want you to know, I don't say this lightly, and I'm not sure I've ever said this more than a couple of times in my life, but Martin Luther was wrong. He was wrong about the book of James. He misunderstood it. And who am I to say that I understood it better than he, but I really do think I understand it better than he did. There was a, a great quote I came across this past week by a biblical scholar, and I totally butchered his name in the first service, so I'm doing this with fear, fear interpretation. But in case you know who he is, I'll try it again. His name is Spiros Zodiades. He's a Greek theologian. And um, he said, and I love this visual image he gives for how Paul and, John, and James are not fighting against each other. Listen to this quote. He says, James and Paul aren't facing each other in an argument. James and Paul are fighting back to back against opposite enemies. And that really resonated with me because I love action adventure movies. How, much, how often do you see it in these movies where the two good guys are in an impossible situation, they're surrounded by the bad guys, and so how are they going to get out of this impossible situation? Well, they stand back to back and they fire at enemies in both directions. And I love that image. That's exactly what he's saying here. Paul is firing in this direction and James is firing in that direction and they're protecting one another and fighting for the same cause, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Another quote I came across which I thought was helpful is from a book written by Tim Keller about the church. Tim Keller says, two errors constantly seek to corrupt the gospel message and steal away from us the power of the gospel. Legalism says that we have to live a holy, good life in order to be saved. Antinomianism, the word literally means against the law, antinomianism says that because we are saved, we don't have to live a holy, good life. You see, the picture that Keller is putting before us is that as the church 
tries to stay true and faithful to the gospel and move forward, we have to always realize that there are two big, deep chasms, ditches on each side of the road, and we have to be careful not to fall into either one of them. One side of the road is legalism, the idea that we please God or we earn a right relationship with God by keeping law and doing good works. That's legalism. On the other side of the road is the chasm of antinomianism, saying that, well, we're saved by grace, so it doesn't matter how we live. One side says you have to keep the law in order to be saved. The other side says because you're saved, you don't have to keep the law. And they're both wrong. They're both heresy. And the true gospel stays on the path between the two extremes. And the problem is, sometimes in an effort to not fall into one, you overcorrect. You've done that driving down the road, haven't you? You overcorrect and you end up falling off the other side. It's all about context. If you want to understand what James is saying here in chapter 2, you have to understand the context. It's always about context, isn't it? If you want to make sure you're understanding a passage of scripture, especially a passage of scripture that sounds like it's contradicting another scripture, I'll tell you right now, you're never going to find one passage of scripture that contradicts another passage of scripture because it's God's word. So if it looks like it contradicts, you need to step back and look at the context and understand what it's saying. James here in chapter 2 is not talking about how we are saved. That's not his topic. He's not talking about how we are saved. He's talking about what is the nature of true faith. What does it mean to be born again? What does it do to your heart when you're born again? He's not talking about how we are saved. He's talking about how do we know that we are saved. James is focused on the results of being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit changes the heart of a dead sinner like you and me, he awakens within us new desires, new pursuits. And our life becomes, instead of being all about self and all about sin, it becomes all about repentance and faith in the one who redeemed us. That's what I've been saying as we've been approaching this book of James. Is you, in order to see how all these different teachings, and it does seem like a kind of a mixed bag of teachings in the book of James, but they're all tied together around the one theme, the idea is, how does true faith work? What does true faith look like? What, is the, what are the fruits that are born by true faith in the life of a redeemed sinner. Well, here I think he gives three characteristics. Of course there's three, it's a sermon. There are three characteristics of born-again faith here. First of all, it understands mercy. Secondly, it proves that you really believe the truth. And thirdly, it changes the direction of your life. Let's look at the first one. Real faith understands at a deep level what mercy is all about. Verse 15, there James uses an example to illustrate a problem that he's already addressed a couple of times, and we're not even that far into the book of James, but already a couple of times this issue has come up that these Jewish Christians, remember he's writing to scattered Jewish Christians across the Roman Empire, he says to these Jewish Christians they have a problem in the way that they are ignoring and mistreating and disrespecting the poor. We saw it back in chapter 1 where he starts the letter by reminding them, look at verse 9 of chapter 1, let the lowly brother, the needy brother, the poor brother, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. He felt it was necessary at the very beginning of the letter to get this point across that if you 
disrespect the poor and honor the rich, then you, you're, you, are, you do not have kingdom values. You do not see as Christ sees. Everything's upside down. And then over in chapter 2 that we looked at last week, beginning in verse 2, he addresses the problem straight on. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's addressing a real and relevant problem among the Jewish Christians. And so he uses this, he brings up, to illustrate this, he uses kind of an extreme or an exaggerated example. Because they were mistreating poor people that were strangers, that came into their midst. But he says, what about if you were to see a beloved brother or sister in Christ? You're walking through the neighborhood and you see a beloved brother or sister in Christ who is starving and freezing to death. Who among you would walk to the other side of the street and pass by them? Wouldn't you go and care for them? Why? He's saying because true Christians understand mercy. They're driven by mercy. Why? Because we've received so much mercy from God. This example that James uses reminds me of a parable that Jesus told that I constantly go back to to check my frame of reference. Jesus told a parable called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in the story that he told, it was about a man who owed his master. He was a servant of a master, and he owed his master a debt that in today's figures would be in the millions of dollars. He owed millions of dollars to his master. And when the master calls in the debt, he goes into the master and he begs for mercy. Not even actually quite mercy, he begs for time to earn it back, which was impossible. But what does the master do? He forgives the debt entirely, wipes the slate clean. You remember the story, what happens then? That servant then goes out and find a, finds a fellow servant who owed him just a few dollars. And that man begged him for mercy. And he refused to give it. And Jesus told that story to shock us, to say, how could that man possibly do that? And you know what Jesus' point was? He was saying to all of us, every time you don't show mercy to somebody else, you're like that man. You're just like that man. God has forgiven you so much. God has shown so much mercy to you. If you really understand that, how can you not turn around and show that same mercy to others? And James here is applying that to how we treat the poor and the needy and the vulnerable and the oppressed. And he's saying, if you truly believe the gospel, and as the Apostle Paul defines the gospel in this way, he says, how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. If that's the gospel, that Christ in all of his heavenly glory as the eternal Son of God was willing to be made man and dwell among us as a human being, both God and man, not as a ruler, but as a servant, and not just as a servant human, but as a sacrifice for sin on the cross as he bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved in our place and died for us. 
He was obedient unto the point of death. If he became that poor so that you could be given the gift of all of the kingdom riches for all eternity, how could you not turn around to somebody else in need and give them whatever you can give? He's talking about what the state of the heart is. Do you really understand what it means to receive mercy? Do you really understand the gospel? Then it must change the way you treat others. It must change the way you look at others. You know, we tend to think of all of the Jews as being legalists because the New Testament Gospels primarily deal with the Pharisees. But remember, the Pharisees were only a small portion of the entire Jewish people. The Pharisees had a big problem with legalism, that's true, but there were many other Jews. As a matter of fact, if you look carefully at the Old Testament, kind of look at it in the big picture, what did God warn and condemn and judge Israel for over and over and over? Was it legalism? Not really. It was what we would call antinomianism. Antinomianism is what he was judging them for. That they thought that being Jews and having the law and keeping these outward rituals, that's all they had to do. They were God's people. And how did they live? By and large, read the words of the prophets. They oppressed the poor. They ignored the poor. They disrespected the poor. They gave themselves over to idolatry. They gave themselves over to gross sexual sin. These weren't legalists. These were antinomians by and large. And so James is writing to Jewish Christians with that heritage. And that's why James says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, that's what a regenerated heart produces. It produces a heart of mercy towards others in need, and it produces a desire, a passion for holiness. That's, those are the fruits of a born-again heart. That brings us to the second point that James makes, that real faith proves genuine belief in the truth. It's easy to say that you believe the truth, but do you really believe it? If you've been born again and you've been given a new heart, it is a heart that transforms the mind. It is a heart that produces a new worldview that is going to change how you view other people. It's going to change how you view yourself. It's going to change how you view God. It's a radical transformation of worldview. And if you really believe, that's progressively happening in your life. In verse 18, James imagines that some will argue that some Christians are called to works and some Christians are called to faith and try to divide it up. Okay, James, you really care about works, that's your thing, but my thing is faith, I believe. And I think he's challenging that. Do you really believe? You know, 40 years ago, there was a popular phrase in evangelical Christianity. It was called uh, carnal Christianity. It was the idea that there are basically in this theology... The idea was there are actually three types of people in the world. That there are unbelievers who reject the truth of scripture and reject the gospel. Then you had believers who believed the Apostles' Creed, believed in Jesus, got saved, got their fire insurance, but 
they didn't yet see him or accept him as Lord. And so they're saved, but they're not living under the Lordship of Christ. And then you had this third category of Christians that accepted Christ as their Savior and also submitted to him as their Lord. And so the idea is there are three kinds of people. But when you read scripture, God doesn't see us as three kinds of people. He sees us as two. You're either dead in your sins, self-centered, living for the flesh, and destined for eternal death and damnation, or you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, with a new heart, new mind, new eyes, and you are becoming a new creature. You are changed. You have new desires, new thoughts. There's only two kinds of people from God's perspective. Now, I understand sometimes it looks like somebody who's not grown very much, they look like a, what they call a carnal Christian, but theologically, there is no such thing. Nobody who's saved, but not having a desire to repent and seek to do good works. You can't separate faith and works. Owen mentioned earlier the, one of the creeds of the reformers was the idea that faith alone justifies but faith that justifies is never alone it's always accompanied by works if you say that you believe that the bible is 100% true in all that it teaches and yet you consistently on an ongoing basis reject it as a pattern for the way you should live your life then you have to ask yourself do I really believe the bible is true let me use a silly example if I were to tell you that yesterday I went out and under the tree out in front of the church, I buried a million dollars. And it's first come, first serve. Whoever gets it, it's yours. If I told that to you and you all said, I said, do you believe I did that? And you all nodded back and said, yes, I believe you did that. And then after the service, you hung out here and talked for 45 minutes and <laughs> then got in the car and drove home and made dinner. Wouldn't I have the right to say, did you really believe me? Would you have lived that way if you really believed me? But Jesus Christ called the kingdom of God the pearl of great price. It's the joy above all joys. It's the path to fulfillment. It's the open door to eternal life. If you really believe that, how can it not change you? In verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one. You know what he's doing there. He's quoting the, the Jewish Shema, the uh, phrase from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Let me read that verse to you. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That became a crucial confession of faith for the Jewish people, and they said it in their daily prayers. They knew it very, very well. And so he's quoting that phrase that they believe that God is one. It's a confession of faith. I believe this. God is one. And he says, you do well. This is how I know that sarcasm is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit, that, that you're allowed to use sarcasm very, very carefully. All you fans of Babylon B will be glad to hear that, that there is an appropriate use of parody and sarcasm because James is doing it here. If you don't know what the Babylon B is, ask Pam, she'll tell you. Um, but, you know, he's being extremely sarcastic. You think you do well because you can recite this confession and say it with gusto? He says the demons believe that. That's not news to the demons. They believe that God is one. 
Do you think that you can stand in church and recite the Apostles' Creed and say, because I can say that, therefore I know that I'm right with God and I have eternal life? The demons believe the Apostles' Creed. Remember what the demons said when Jesus confronted them during his earthly ministry? Let me give you one example. This is what one of the demons said. He said, he said to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a lot of right doctrine there. You see, the difference between Christians and demons isn't that Christians believe God's word and demons don't believe God's word. That's not the difference between us. The difference between us is that we believe God's word, we trust in God and his word, we submit to God and we obey God. Whereas the demons believe what God's word teaches, but they rebel against it and they disobey it. That's the difference. It's a difference of heart, not mind. A born-again heart. Faith without works isn't only dead, as James says, it's actually, he says, demonic. Faith without works. Which brings us to the third point that James makes, is that real faith changes the direction of your life. It has to. It changes the direction of your life. He uses two examples there at the end, verses 20 through 26, that, of course, Jewish Christians would be very familiar with, especially the first one, Abraham, the great Abraham, the father of the faith, the, the father of the Jewish nation. The patriarch, the first patriarch, great Abraham, he alludes to him. And this fascinates me because as we talk about Paul and James not arguing with and debating with each other, that they're actually fighting and debating and arguing in opposite directions against, in support of one another towards opposite foes, it's interesting to me that James and Paul both appeal to Abraham at the same point in their argument. Paul, in talking about us being justified by faith alone in Romans chapter 4, immediately appeals to Abraham and say, look at what happened in Abraham's life. God made promises to Abraham. He said, I am going to give you a son, and through that son, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and through that great nation, I am going to bring one who will be a blessing to all nations. And how did Abraham respond? Well, that's Genesis 15, 6, that's what, what's quoted here. It's also quoted in Romans 4. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness, James quotes it. He believed, and because he believed, he was given the gift of perfect righteousness. We know that the perfect righteousness came from the one who was to come through Isaac, the son of Abraham, and the great nation, and the one who would come from that nation who would redeem us from our sins, who would die on the cross to pay for our sins and be raised from the dead for our justification, that through that promised one, Abraham's sins would be forgiven and he would be given the gift of righteousness. And it's actually accounted to him at that moment when he put his faith in the promises of God. That's salvation by faith alone. What's well, interesting here, James actually alludes to the same patriarch, Abraham, and he quotes the same verse, Genesis 15, 6. And he says, yes, that's true. Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed and because he believed alone. But then he goes 
to the great example of the fruit of Abraham's belief and faith. The great test of Abraham's faith came 30 years later when God commanded him to take that one precious son through whom all the promises were to be fulfilled, take him to the top of the mountain, lay him on an altar, and then sacrifice him. And the story in Genesis makes it very clear in chapter 22 that Abraham would have done it if God hadn't stopped him and provided a substitute on the altar in the place of his son. Abraham would have killed his son in order to be obedient to the God in whom he trusted. And I love Hebrews chapter 11 because it gives us a little insight into what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind. Listen to this very important element that Hebrews adds to the story. This is from chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham was willing to obey God even to the point of taking the life of his son because he believed that God is so faithful to his promises that if it meant physically resurrecting him from the dead in order for God to fulfill his promises, God would do it. That's how much he trusted God. You see, belief is not just saying you believe in God. It's trusting everything, the most precious things of your life, to him. That's faith. That's James' point. Now, you might be saying, but I can't live up to that. Well, Abraham didn't live up to it all the time. Abraham doubted. Abraham had dark moments where his faith wavered. He tried to sleep with his servant in order to have a son when he lost patience of God fulfilling his promise through his wife. That's sin, and sin is a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust in God's word. Abraham passed off his wife twice as being his sister to Pharaoh because he feared for his life and he gave his wife to Pharaoh. That is a horrible lack of faith. He failed. I'm not saying that Abraham was perfect in his faith. Yes, he passed this big test, but he he failed a few smaller ones. But it changed the direction of his life. His life went from being self-centered, bound as a slave to sin, to being freed to obey, to live a life of faith and repentance. Because faith is not just, true faith doesn't just produce good works, it produces repentance. A turning from your old life to Christ-likeness. And then James concludes with the example of Rahab which is kind of on the other end of the social spectrum from Abraham. He went from the great patriarch of the Jewish people to a pagan, Gentile prostitute who also was saved by faith. When the spies that Joshua sent came to Rahab, she made a confession of faith. To quote her exactly from the book of Joshua, she said, The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She made a profession of faith. How do you know if it was real or not? She welcomed the spies. She hid the spies. 
She sent them on their way. She did what the spies told her to do in order to signal that her family was to be saved while the rest of the city was destroyed. Her works proved that her faith was genuine. That's James' point. She was saved by faith alone, but her faith was proven by the way she lived it out. You see, the key to understanding, and I'm just going to kind of wrap up things with the theological terminology here. The key to understanding how Paul and James, as Paul fights for salvation by faith alone, and James fights for salvation that produces good works, to see how they fit together, you have to understand that when Paul uses the word justified, he uses it in a different sense than, he, than James uses it in chapter 2 here. When Paul talks about justified, he's talking about God justifying us by giving us Christ's righteousness and allowing Christ's blood to shed, to cover our sin. We are justified in a moment. It's a legal transaction. We were guilty before the throne room of God, before the judgment seat of God. We were guilty, but God applied the righteousness of Christ to our unrighteousness. He applied the blood of Christ to our sin. And he immediately, when we profess faith in Christ, he reckons to us, he credits to us, just like he did to Abraham, righteousness so that we are acceptable to God for all eternity. That's legal justification. But James uses it in more of the casual sense of the word justify. In other words, the way James uses it, it means to prove something to be true or genuine. If your boss says to you, hey, I looked at these receipts that you turned in, you need to justify a couple of these receipts. He's not telling you to go out and declare them not guilty. What he's telling you to do is to go out and prove that there was a genuine expense to match that receipt. That's the way James is using the term here. How do you know if your faith is real? It needs to be justified. Maybe this would help. When Paul talks about justification, he almost always means justified before God. When James talks about justification, he almost always means justified before men. Because God knows who is just by faith in Christ and who isn't, but we don't. And the only way we can know is by seeing fruit in the lives. That's what Jesus taught. You will know them by their fruit. This passage really comes home to me when I think of my own journey of faith. I was raised in a good church-going home. We went to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I went to Sunday school. I went to VBS. I was a good church kid. When I became a teenager, I rejected the lifestyle, the dark and dirty lifestyles of my friends. I was a good kid by all outward observances. And I would have called myself a Christian and would have been dogmatic about it. But then something happened. My junior year of high school, my older brother, whom I'd grown up with, my older brother came home from Penn State for the Thanksgiving celebration. And he announced to the family that he had become a Christian. Rocked my world. Because he had lived just the same good church kid life that I had lived. He was just as religious as I was. Just as much a good kid as I was. But if now he had become a Christian, what does that say about me? And I began to notice his attitude was different. He treated his parents different. He treated me differently. He was a changed man. And that drove me to search the scriptures to find out what was different about him. 
And what I found out was the difference was the doctrine of regeneration. He had been born again. He had been given a new heart and it had begun producing good fruit in his life. At Oakwood, we call ourselves a grace-centered church. We talk about the gospel all the time. We emphasize the work of Christ. We emphasize grace. You hear about grace all the time. I guess we need to take James to heart because we want so much to stay true to our focus, to be faithful to Paul, but we need to understand that Paul and James are fighting two different enemies, and by going focusing too much only what Paul is saying, sometimes we forget to focus on what James is saying, is that if you are truly born again by grace, your life should show it. You should have a hunger for holiness, and you should have a heart for the needy, the poor, the hurting. And I want Oakwood's reputation in the community not to be only that we are a Bible-preaching church that emphasizes grace. I want it to be that, but I want it to be a church that proves it by our passion for holiness and our heart for mercy. Join me in praying for that. Father, thank you for both James and for Paul. Thank you that as we read and study them together, we get a balanced understanding of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is anyone here this morning who has only been mouthing the words of the Apostles' Creed and thinking that they believe it, but maybe now and considering what James is saying is wondering whether they've been truly born again, I pray, Lord, that you would bring about that powerful work of the Spirit in their heart, open their eyes, open their ears, enable them to understand who Jesus Christ really is and what he has truly done. And Lord, Ben, begin to transform them by your grace. And Lord, for those of us who have believed that and lived that and experienced that for a long time, help us to not fall into either ditch on either side of the road. Not fall into legalism or antinomianism, but teach us to walk in the ways of the Lord, loving you and loving people well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.